The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, September 9th, 10th Digest of this third volume, covering Monday, September 4th through Friday, September 8th, 2023. If you remember that bumper music that I played right at the start of this episode, if you remember what I used it for, or if you can just get a, a, an idea of what this opening topic might be from the lyrics, it is time to talk about Danger Street. Danger Street from DC Comics. This 12-issue maxi-series was announced in the beginning of 2022, and right from the premise, I knew that it was a book that I had to get my hands on, and I knew that it was a book that I would eventually talk about. So this is under DC's Black Label, and Danger Street was called a deeply layered crime drama featuring reimagined and updated versions of some of DC's most obscure and offbeat superheroes from the DC first issue special series from the mid-1970s. And then if I uh, give you one of the early blurbs, it said... Joining the Justice League is a goal for any superhero, but what happens when a quest for membership takes a sinister turn? Join Starman, Metamorpho, and Warlord as they look to prove themselves worthy by summoning and defeating Darkseid in battle. Soon they'll learn that calling upon a new god never ends well, and their world is headed for disaster as a result. The journey to save the day will be a treacherous one filled with princesses, knights, and all kinds of monsters. Each person the heroes encounter plays a crucial role in the sprawling yet gripping narrative that is a little bit silly, a whole lot dark, and completely cool. So you mix all that together. It's written by Tom King. The art is by Jorge Fernez. And right away I was like, okay... I need to prep myself for this. I need to read first issue special because up to that point, I think I only read the issue with Manhunter and I owned the issue with Lady Cop. I don't remember if I read it though, um, but that was it. And fortunately for me, all of the issues are on the DCU app. So I was like, this is great. This is perfect. Let me do some prep work. It wound up being a series of segments in volume one of the very, you know, the very first digest year entitled Road to Danger Street. And that opening music, as I mentioned, was what kicked off each segment. So I wound up reading all 13 issues, talked about each issue week by week, and I learned about 
you know, some new concepts like Atlas and the Green Team, Lady Cop, the Dingbats of Danger Street, the Outsiders, Codename Assassin, and then some of the other issues featured characters that were already established or that I already knew, Metamorpho, Manhunter, as I said, the Creeper, Warlord, Dr. Fate, Starman, and the New Gods. All of those characters show up in this series, so, you know, for me, I just had to learn about them. The real hook of those segments was to see if I could figure out how all of these characters, stories, or themes could be used for Danger Street. How would they connect? Were there any dangling plot threads that could be undangled in Danger Street? What connections could I make uh, with all of these characters, with all, with all of these settings, you know, with all of these misfits, with all of these oddities? What could I think of if I put on my writer hat or try to get into Tom King's brain? What could I think of in fun ways that might carry over to Danger Street? And now we get to look at the book issue by issue. We're going to discuss it, figure out what's going on, and see if any of those speculations were correct. So, Danger Street number one. Tom King, Jorge Fornes, Dave Stewart on colors, Clayton Cowles on letters. As I'm recording this, there are eight issues on the stands. Issue nine is coming out next week. I have read all eight issues, but we're only going to go one issue at a time. And um, I'm going to try my best not to filter in too much from later issues into the early issues. In fact, as I wrote my notes uh, per each issue as I was reading it, I very rarely went backwards and added notes into previous issues. So you're going to hear my thoughts as they um, were, as they were filtered, you know, issue by issue. All right. Let me give you a synopsis for Danger Street number one. The Dingbats are going off-roading, but before they get to the desert where they're going to off-road, they cause a a traffic jam on the way, which brings Lady Cop onto the scene where she tells them, okay, you know, I could give you a ticket or I could escort you to your location. Pick, Pick one. Uh, We cut to a scene where the Creeper is stopping a criminal in a very violent way, bringing Creeper into the story. And then it cuts to his alter ego of Jack Ryder, who is listening to his agent talk about a potential new job, a high-paying job, with a big cable news network that specifically wants Jack Ryder and his outlandish ways He's very much cut from the same cloth like a Bill O'Reilly, a, a Tucker Carlson, you know, all those asshats. Um, and this new cable or this big cable news network is GTN and they want him. So his agent is like, go get a meeting, go go to the meeting. We see Starman and Warlord in a restaurant waiting for uh, Metamorpho because they have some kind of plan. Uh, We then cut to the Grandmaster talking to his Manhunter named, I'm assuming, he calls him Mark, so I'm assuming this is Mark Shaw, uh, telling him that after 100 generations, the true hunt begins. They've been preparing uh, because this great evil has finally emerged. 
but will Mark be able to go through with this hunt, or will he show mercy because the Grandmaster tells him this new evil that they're hunting, they are children. We cut to the desert where you see the dingbats, but you also see uh, the trio of uh, Warlord, Starman, and Metamorpho. Uh, Metamorpho is missing an arm, and he apparently traded his arm for the Helmet of Fate, but we don't know who he traded it with just yet. They are going to use this helmet plus an incantation that they learned from the people that they got the helmet from as a kind of initiation because they want to join the Justice League of America. We cut to Lady Cop. She's playing cards with one of her deputies and she flashes back to her origin story from her first issue special where she witnessed the deaths of her roommates at the hands of someone in cowboy boots. That's all she saw. And he was he was dropping playing cards um, as he killed his uh, as he killed these these women. Uh, the trio in the desert, they do the incantation, they get ready to call Dark Side. Metamorpho turns his body to all diamond and out from the helmet, they don't get Darkseid, but they get the character of Atlas from the very first issue of First Issue Special. And he is screaming that the sky is falling, and he just attacks them. And he shatters Metamorpho, even though he's in diamond form. Eventually, Warlord manages to kill Atlas or stab through him. Starman panics and turns and fires and shoots and kills one of the dingbats who was looking on as all of this was going on. He kills uh, good looks. We cut to Jack Ryder, who, is, who has been auditioning for this, this GTN. He lands the job. He meets them, and he is hired by children. They are the green team. Abdul Smith... Uh, J.P. Houston, Cecil, Cecil the Star Maker, and the one that seems to be leading them, the Commodore. And off to the side of their office is their bodyguard, Codename Assassin, one of the other first issue special characters. And you also see on the desk, there's an arm made of diamond in a display case. And they, the reason they hired Jack Ryder is because they want him to educate America on a freak terrorist group known as the Outsiders. And there you go. That's the final um, character or team or concept from First Issue Special. So we see everybody. We see everybody physically present except for the Outsiders. And we don't really see the new gods, but both of the, those concepts are mentioned. So there's your synopsis. That's what happens in issue one. Obviously, there are some, you know, some nuances, some some other things that happen. You know, I don't want to read it. If you're going to read it, read it. If, if not, you know, you might get some other stuff as I talk about it. So let me just quickly lay out some behind the scenes stuff from Tom King first. Uh, it'll give you, if you're not reading it, it'll give you more of an idea of how this story is being told. So in interviews, 
Tom King talks about how there are 24 different characters, and I wondered how all these people could exist in the same universe, because the power sets were radically different. Some of them were cosmic, some were street level. I was like, how in our industry, which is founded on the fact that we're all playing with toys in the same work, can this ever work? It just can't. It doesn't make any sense to me. So then, being a stupid, arrogant writer, I said, wait, I can do it. I said, I want to see all of these people, all of these insane concepts that make no sense, next to each other. I want to see them all next to each other. I want to see them banging off each other. So I constructed this series, which is sort of a crime series, sort of a Coen Coen Brothers movie about these 24 characters and how their lives blast into each other. He continues on, this is not a superhero book. These aren't people all on the same team. These are just uh, these are just people that exist and try to be people, and they sort of team up and bounce off of each other. I've never seen anything quite like that before, even in Watchmen. By the end, they formed a superhero team to take on Osmandius. Not a team book, not a solo story. It's some bizarre hybrid of the two. Now, I think... Um, I feel like this reads very much like five years later during the Legion run that began in 1989. Now, that was a team book, but it really also wasn't a team book. I mean, their main first drive, uh, I mean, it really, and it wasn't even all the characters, but, you know, they eventually would form a team, but it wasn't necessarily a team, you know? Um, I think the narrative, the way those creators were telling that story is really what's most important, and that's what I get from Danger Street. So, of course, I'm going to love it. And I feel like Tom King is doing exactly what he set out to do, putting all these very distinct, unique characters together and trying to make sense of them within one large universe, the DC universe. And that's kind of what I did when I was going through the Road to Danger Street segments, and here in Danger Street, it works. It really works. The artwork is great. Uh, Jorge Fernandez is really good at character design so that they are instantly recognizable. It also helps that they are very distinct from each other, but I appreciate that consistency from page to page. Uh, It's a mix of, uh, you know, some... basis in reality with comic book cartooning. Tom King described his work as Lee Weeks or David Mazzucchelli, but I think it's, I think it's far more expressive than that. Um, If you are someone that when you think of a Tom King book, you think right away nine panel grids, that is not the case here. Uh, The, the panel layout flows depending on what each scene needs. There are splash pages, there are layouts that have no kind of symmetry to them. Uh, and then when you get a nine panel page grid, it's for a very obvious reason. So I, I do appreciate that as well. Okay, so if I dig in, if I go right to the things that I got right, right from this very first issue, as I mentioned, as I was reading their chapter within first issue special, The green team are the villains, are the bad guys in this story. At least you get a very ominous sense of them from this first issue. It's directly spelled out by the narration where it starts talking about Warlord and Starman and it calls them princes. 
and they have just killed that young boy and talked about shame and whatever. And it says here, shame is common for princes, but there are others who have never and will never experience that particularly acute emotion. They were known then by the name they are known by today. They are monsters. So even then, the narration, as they introduce you to the green team, they are calling them monsters. And just the way the Commodore talks to Jack Ryder and how he wants him to do this thing and, and he wants them to call out this freak terrorist group calling themselves the outsiders. You just automatically get the sense they're going to be the big bad. So I love that I was right about that. In that first issue special segment where I talked about the green team, I talked, I even said Commodore felt like a villain. It felt like white collar crime, what they were doing. Something about them felt shady. I didn't know if I was supposed to trust them or the people they worked with. And this also came because I read a few other green team issues from Cancelled Comics Cavalcade. And just something about them, I was like, okay, I think they're ripe to be the antagonists or the villains for Danger Street. And I was correct. I love that Tom King connected Codename Assassin with them. And you get the feeling that when the Grandmaster said, okay, Manhunter, we're going after our prey... And, but their children, well, that's, that's who the green team is, right? They are children. So there we go. One of the other speculations was, um, is there a connection between green team and the dingbats of danger street? Because they were both youth groups and we don't get that here, but we may get that in later issues. So keep that in the back of your head. And many of the concepts in first issue special had, people that were behind the scenes or who were supporting characters to the main feature. So you had a character known as Chagra for Atlas, who had some kind of secret. The Manhunter had the Grandmaster or even his uncle in the first issue special story. Um, there was supposed to be someone that actually formed the Green Team. His name was P.T. Green. This was from the text page. That wasn't his real name. He took the idea of New York gangs, but instead of gangs that caused strife and violence, he, he said, well, let me turn them into a rich gang of youths and their weapon would be money. There was even this notion who trained the dingbats. There was something about they had, not like powers, but there was something about them that also su suggested that someone trained them. So, those are things that, um, you know, Chagra doesn't show up in this, but this notion of, of people behind people, it might play out. Uh, you know, you could even say the agent that we never see talking to Creeper, you know, it's like, who is that? Who is that agent? Do we, are we supposed to know who that is? Does it matter? I guess we'll see down the road. For Lady Cop, one of the speculations or one of the hopes that I had for Danger Street is that because of her very violent origin story that she was witness to her roommates getting killed and that's why she makes the decision to become Lady Cop. I was hoping that mystery would play out and it looks like that's something that Tom King might actually do. Maybe he might even answer who is the person 
wearing those cowboy boots. Now, it makes me think that it's one of the green team members known as J.P. Houston because he's an oil magnet. He has he has a cowboy hat. He probably wears cowboy boots. Was it him? Was it the Commodore in disguise? You know, I don't know. We're, we, we, I'm hoping we figure that out. Tom King has put Lady Cop and the Dingbats in Danger Street of Danger Street in California. I believe Lady Cop was, I don't think it was ever mentioned where she was. I think it was, they said it was like a metropolitan city, but he decided to put them in California. And we see the, Dane, the Dingbats as Jack, Jack Kirby intended. Crunch is uh, white, um, non-fat is black. Good looks. He looks white, but he also looks like he could be Mexican. Um, and Bananas is Asian. So, you know, they restored that um, demographic breakdown for the characters. When I did read the Dingbats issue, the word fate was used a lot. And, you know, obviously we have the helmet of fate here. They were often hounded by a cop, but that cop was had a different name, although they called him an outsider because their whole thing is, you know, if you're an adult, we hate you, right? So there's that word. Um, and I don't mean that as like, oh, I got my one of, one of my speculations right. No, that's just something if you're reading it, you, you start to recognize patterns. And that's what that was. For, uh, let's see, Metamorpho, Warlord, and Starman. Um, one of my questions is like, where does this story take place? You know, and we'll talk about that in later issues. Metamorpho sounds like he already worked with the Justice League, which would make sense because there are stories featuring Metamorpho and the Justice League of America. When Tom King talks about these, these, this is not a superhero story, you do get that sense in this scene where everything kind of goes kablooey because they leave Metamorpho's shattered body in the desert. They even leave the body of the young dingbat of good looks after Starman has, you know, blasted through his body. I mean, they just leave them there. And that's not awfully, that's not heroic, you know? So that was strange. That was very strange. Um, for Atlas, you know, that character in mythology is about he holds the heavens on his shoulders. So him coming to them and saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, you know, what does that mean? We don't know that just yet, but we will find that out in later issues. So I am completely thrilled that I got a few of my speculations answered right away in this first issue. And it makes the journey to the later issues just that much more fun. So um, I'm looking forward to digging in deeper, to bringing in some, some more of those speculations, make some more connections. There are even going to be Watchmen connections as I go on issue to issue. Let me talk briefly about the narration. The story is being told by the Helmet of Fate. Uh, it The narration feels like a fairy tale. He says, uh, once upon a time in a far off kingdom, and then the story goes from there, and he talks about, you know, Lady Cop is a princess, princess, uh, warlord, starman, metamorpho are princes, creeper is an ogre, the, the green team, they are uh, monsters. Uh, Manhunter is a knight, etc., etc., etc. And Tom King mentioned that he had seen the musical Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. And that's exactly how that musical start, starts. Once upon a time in a far off kingdom, 
there was a, a lad and a, and a young maiden, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the premise of Into the Woods is what if all the fairy tales existed in one setting, in one universe? This was decades before fables, right? Decades before the ABC show, Once Upon a Time, I guess. I don't remember what it was called. And to be fair, that musical probably wasn't the first time someone brought uh, fairy tale characters together. But the premise was they all lived in one forest. Uh, you know, Prince Charming for Cinderella was the same prince that um, woke up Snow White. You know, like the, it was it was all kind of connected. And uh, Tom King saw that and that also helped to you know, think about how he was going to tell the story. And that's where he gets this narrative. So the narrative is talking in fairy tale terms against a very mundane ground to earth or the reality of the story that is being told visually. So I do adore that. And the cover, the cover for issue number one finally makes sense. It's a hand with the helmet of fate down below it. I have to imagine the hand and the forearm probably belong to Metamorpho. It looks like it has a similar design to his weird body structure. Uh, so we have Metamorpho, we have the Helmet of Fate. I believe it's in a desert with this kind of like mushroom cloud of, ex of an explosion behind it. Um, we'll learn a little bit more about what that might mean next issue. And then the logo itself, so in danger, the letter A is in the form of a street sign that is usually used to denote danger. And then there's this weird circular and, and line work pattern behind it. Feels very Kirby. And it feels like if you look at the Manhunter scene in this issue, you can see similar elements. And in later issues with the New Gods, you also see similar elements. So I have to imagine that also is in play. So there you go. That's my look at issue number one of Danger Street. This is something that a few of you wrote in to say that I should go and, and jump in and I should talk about, especially since I did all of those Road to Danger Street segments. So hopefully this appeals to those people. Uh, we will continue with issue two in probably the next digest. I don't have a set schedule just yet. It may not always be on a Monday. It might be a different day as well. But I am looking forward to talking to you about this maxi series now that I've read up to issue eight. Eventually, I'll get to issue nine. And, uh, you know, we'll see how this, this story plays out. Timeline Trivia Tuesday, taking a look at comic book anniversaries while giving you some trivia all based on the month of September. Going back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago, and we're going to hit some major comics this time around. So let's start 10 years ago, September of 2013. From Marvel Comics, we have the crossover Battle of the Atom. Ten issues running through the uh, X-Books in a story involving the X-Men of the future traveling to the present time in order to force the time-displaced X-Men known as the all-new X-Men from the past to return 
to their rightful time. And uh, because their presence within the current time is causing, you know, disastrous consequences. And we see that right away in, in the first chapter, which was X-Men Battle of the Atom by Brian Michael Bendis and Frank Cho and company, where a young Cyclops dies and then the adult Cyclops blinks out of existence, and but then they resurrect the young Cyclops, and then everything's well again, and that causes uh, the start of the crossover. From Avatar 10 years ago, God is Dead, one of six, created by Jonathan Hickman, written by Hickman and Mike Costa, art by D. Amarim. This story is, you know, kind of like what if all the sky gods in Thor came together to lay claim to Earth? And then there were, you know, there's going to be a lot of violence, a lot of over-the-topness, <laughs> gore, some sex. And then there would be later volumes that would be written by Alan Moore and Cy Spurrier and others. From Dark Horse, 10 years ago, they gave us the Star Wars, not Star Wars, but The Star Wars, One of Eight, by Jonathan W. Rinsler, Mike Mayhew on pencils. This would adapt the original Lucas draft for Star Wars from 1974, in which, in which Luke Skywalker is older and already a Jedi, and the main protagonist is someone named Anakin Starkiller. Lucas was hesitant to adapt this at first, but then Dark Horse got a bunch of sample pages together to show him, and he agreed. The art by Mike Mayhew takes its cues from concept art by Ralph McQuarrie, Joe Johnson, Colin Cantwell, and the story uh, was even more leaning into Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. And then your question... For 10 years ago, September 2013, comes from DC Comics Forever Evil number one of seven. This was uh, the first line wide crossover, apparently, of the new 52, spinning out of the Justice League story entitled Trinity War, which was also uh, an intertitle crossover. Featuring the crime syndicate of the New 52, taking over the world, getting all of the villains to join their cause, leading Luther to create his own team called the Injustice League to combat them. And then eventually, by the end of this uh, crossover, he eventually joins the Justice League for a little while. This was also the month that gave us Villains Month. So DC started to do point issues. So instead of 23, 24, 25, it was like 23.1, 23.2, etc. And they all had these 3D lenticular motion covers on the front and back, and they just flooded the shelves with all of these. Like some titles got two a month, some got four a month. Uh, yeah. That was a that was a busy time for DC. So your question comes from that first issue of Forever Evil. In order to convince the gathered villains of just how serious they were, the crime syndicate reveals that they had a captured hero in their hands, and they revealed this hero's true identity to the villains. Who was that hero? 20 years ago, 20 years ago, September of 2003, 
Batman 619 brought the end of the Hush storyline by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee and company. We also got Sandman Endless Nights, which was a follow-up to the Sandman series. Seven stories devoted to the individual seven members of the Endless by Neil Gaiman with art by P. Craig Russell, Milo Minara, Bill Sienkiewicz, Glenn Fabry, Fright Quietly, and others. Apparently, this was also the first comic book to ever be on the New York Times bestseller list. From Ultimate Marvel, 20 years ago, we got Ultimate 6, 1 of 7, which was a crossover between Spider-Man and the Ultimates, featuring the Ultimate Sinister 6. This was by Brian Michael Bendis, Trevor Harrison, and company. So we had Sandman, Doc Ock, Craven, Electro, Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, right? And the sixth member eventually wound up to be Spider-Man. And they were up against S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury and the Ultimates. We also got 20 years ago New X-Men 146 by Grant Morrison and Phil Jimenez, the first part of the Planet X storyline, where Zorn... The man with the star four brain stands revealed as a traitor within the X-Men's myth, X-Men's uh, midst, Magneto. Not really a traitor, but, you know. Um, and boy, what a mess Marvel would make of that later, not only with Magneto, but with Zorn. Such a good series, such a good reveal, such a good story. I always liked when Phil Jimenez um, does the artwork for a Grant Morrison story. I don't really recall my reaction to this reveal. I'm thinking I might have been behind on my reading. Maybe the story was either spoiled for me or I just sort of flipped through the issue without reading and saw Magneto and was like, wait, what? No. And spoiled myself. I don't remember, but really great run. Really just adore that run. Your question from 20 years ago comes from... JLA Avengers number one, celebrating 20 years this September. Wow, that's just crazy. Kurt Busiek, George Perez, Tom Smith, Comic Craft. Uh, this miniseries came about because George was ready to sign an exclusive with CrossGen at the time. And he said, look, if you two companies don't hash out a contract and send it to me by such and such a date, I am not going to be able to work on it. So it like came down to the wire that he got the contract and they were able to do this long-awaited crossover between the two teams. And boy, what a, uh, an event it was. Four issues, prestige format, just about every Avenger, every Justice League of America member, every villain, character, concept, uh, you know, weapon. Uh, yeah, just so good. If you've never heard the footnotes episodes that Adam and I did on this series, you really should because we dig in super, super, super deep, page by page, panel by panel. It is an amazing series for that kind of um, meticulous examination, if you will. So, your question comes from this first issue. As seen on the cover, don't peek, <laughs> as seen on the cover, when the boundaries between the DC and the Marvel universes start to loosen, inside the story, the JLA find themselves in battle against a Marvel villain, and the Avengers find themselves in a battle against a DC villain. 
who were the two villains. This is very early on in the story. I'll give you a hint. They're, the, both villains are rather large. So who are those two villains? Okay, let's wrap this uh, segment up. 30 years ago, September of 1993, Avengers 368 gave us the first of a five-part Blood Ties crossover celebrating 30 years of the X-Men and Avengers. This first chapter was by Bob Harris and Steve Epting. This was during the Avengers run where they were wearing the jackets, which I always liked. Uh, We had characters like Fabian Cortez trying to take over Genosha. He kidnaps Luna, the daughter of Crystal and Quicksilver, as revenge against Magneto. This is like right after Fatal Attractions. And that's what brings in both the X-Men and the Avengers and also eventually Exodus and then, you know, hijinks ensue. Wolverine 75, speaking of Fatal Attractions, by Larry Hama and Adam Kubert. This is the aftermath of Logan having his adamantium ripped out by Magneto, and we discover in this issue, two weeks later when he's healing, that he has bone claws. And even he didn't realize that that's, you know, that it wasn't just the adamantium that made the claws, it was that he had bone claws. Yeah, weird. Um, From the pages of Demon, Annual 2, during the Bloodlines event... We got the first appearance of Tommy Monahan, the Hitman, created by Garth Ennis and John McCrea. Uh, during this story, his metagene gets activated, he gets x-ray vision, he gets some telepathy, and then he would eventually get his own series starting in 1996 that would run for 60 issues. We got a new Outsiders title 30 years ago, September of 1993, tuned one-shots, Outsiders Alpha and Omega by Mike W. Barr, Paul Pelletier, with covers by Travis Charest. And we would have Geoforce, Looker, Halo, and Katana of the original Outsiders team, joined by new characters Technocrat, Sebastian Faust, who was the son of Felix Faust, and Wild, this uh, combination of uh, a human and a bear all fighting vampires in their first storyline. This series would run for 24 issues. Uh, The Eradicator would become part of this team later on. And both of those issues, the Alpha and Omega, they told different stories, but then there were like a few pages that they had similar between the two issues, so you know where the story falls. So that was kind of cool. And Paul Pelletier, this was early on in his career, probably the first thing I saw his artwork on it. And you can feel that he's emulating a little bit of what Alan Davis did on the previous, uh, or on the first Outsiders uh, volume, Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, 30 years ago, gave us another George Perez title, Sax and Violins, one of four part of Marvel's epic line of heavy hitters by Peter David and George Perez. Um, As the title suggests, it was about sex and violence and adult themes and pornography and snuff films, yikes. Uh, You know, a story that was told very much tongue-in-cheek. It would take six months to get issue two, and then eventually we'd get issue three and number four. Those characters would then show up in Peter David's Fallen Angel, and uh, those covers were by George Perez. 
And then finally, 30 years ago, September 1993, your question comes from Avengers West Coast 100 by Roy Thomas and David Ross, a series that would only last for two more issues. This story sees the team needing to travel to a hellish dimension to rescue Mockingbird, eventually pitting them against the Lethal Legion. By the end of the story, Mockingbird is killed trying to save her husband, Hawkeye, and uh, this happens at the end of a battle, and this is where your question is. Uh, she dies at the end of a battle between what two Marvel demons? Okay, let's go back. Ten years ago, September of 2013, in Forever Evil, the crime syndicate had captured and revealed the identity to the other villains of Nightwing, Richard Grayson Nightwing. From 20 years ago, September of 2003, the two big villains that each of the team of JLA and the Avengers that they fought, the JLA found themselves fighting against Terminus, that John Byrne Fantastic Four character, and the Avengers found themselves uh, found themselves battling Starro and all of his little Starro drones. And 30 years ago, September of 1993, Mockingbird was killed at the end of a battle between two Marvel demons known as Mephisto and Satanish. All right, there you go. There's your comic history. There's your trivia. Let me know how you did. We will finish up with part two in another September Digest. New Comics Wednesday, New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of September 6th. But I'm going to begin with my thoughts on the September previews catalog, or I should say catalogs. I really need to, um, I really need to find a uniform New Comics Wednesday intro bumper music because, um, <laughs> You know, normally what I try to find are videos that are promos for books that are shipping this week, and you probably don't recognize the music, and, you know, if it doesn't have any narr narration, you probably don't. You're like, I don't know what that music is. You know, I know, but you don't. Um, and this, this one that I played here is for one of the recommendations for the previews part of this, and it's for... Um, Animal Pound from Boom Studios, a miniseries by Tom King. But it's like that music and that random barking is just, it's so random, so random. I really need to find something that um, evokes Wednesday, you know, I don't know. Anyway, anyway, September previews for books shipping, uh, well, starting to ship in November, this is turning out to be more about, like, my off-the-cuff thoughts rather than recommendations, but, you know, I have those too. So we start with the image catalog, Dutch Zero. Yes, I said it, Dutch. That member of Team Youngblood created by Chap Yap. Uh, there's a, a Zero issue uh, by Joe Casey and Nathan Fox that will eventually kick off a new series. 
let's see. He was revamped in the Image 30th Anniversary Anthology. I imagine that's what this Zero Issue might be collecting. I like Nathan Fox's artwork, and I like Joe Casey. Uh, you know, so it's like, oh, it's those two. Hmm. Turns out that Joe Casey's first professional comics... Uh, first story that he wrote, the first story that he sold was for a Dutch story intended for the old Youngblood Strike File series. So there's a full circle aspect for Joe Casey. And I was just like, well, there you go. There's an odd recommendation. Uh, also from Image, from previews, uh, G.I. Joe 301, that new series, well, that series begins again at Skybound billed as one of the longest-running titles in comic history, which I was like, is it? I guess, yeah. I mean, Spawn, uh, Wonder Woman and Flash, they just hit 800. Action Comics, Detective Comics, Amazing Spider-Man. It's like, where does that description come from, one of the longest-running titles? Because it's not consistent. You know, there have been breaks. There were hiatuses between Marvel and IDW and IDW and Image. So, you know, it's not really any different than when Marvel and DC do legacy numbering. So, yeah, I mean, I guess. I guess it's one of the longest-running titles. Uh, let's see. Larry Hama is back. Art will be by Chris Mooneyham. And also look for G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, number one, the Larry Hama Cut, which is going to restore the original unedited dialogue, which has never before seen print from that Marvel Comics issue number one. Finally, from Image Comics, this is coming from a recommendation from a longtime CGS listener, Mr. David D. David Del Grasso. Uh, he's from New York. He's a fellow actor. I slept at his apartment once or twice. He is writing, co-writing a story in unbelievable, unfortunately, mostly unreadable and nearly unpublishable, unpublishable Untold Tales of I Hate Fairyland, issue 5 of 5, based on the original series created by Scotty Young. Congrats, congrats, and how cool is that? Would love to know how that connection got made, so congrats to David D. Let's go to Marvel's catalog, where they are doing Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars Battle War, Battle World, 1 of 4, by Tom DeFalco and Pat Olaf. An all-new story set during the original Secret Wars shortly after Spider-Man receives his new costume in celebration of 40 years of Secret Wars. So look for the Ryan Stegman homage cover uh, to Secret Wars issue number one, which has all the same characters and all the same positions, except Spider-Man is wearing his black suit. And then as I started to go through Marvel's catalog, this is where the the thoughts started to linger in. Um, I got completely sidetracked because of all of the mother flipping five ninety nine books. Five ninety nine. It's not even the price point that bothers me. It's the page count. Five ninety nine for forty pages. Superior, uh, Superior Spider Man number one, Gwen Stacy number one, which is a mini series, Thunderbolts number one. The Sentry number one miniseries by Relative Unknowns, Punisher number one, Amazing Spider-Man 39, which is the start of the gang war, Spider-Boy number one, Carnage number one, and any others that I might have missed. Marvel just going all in on the price gouging. 
it's funny because most of the X books are three ninety nine, and they have you know kind of like top tier talent. Yet they're three ninety nine. Now I understand that they get ordered a lot, but a mini a Gwen Stacy mini series, a Century One mini series that's not even about like the Century, you know. Like there are some one shots that I'm okay with. There's the X Men Blue Origins one shot. Uh, Cy Spurrier, Wilton Santos. It's supposed to be like the definitive Nightcrawler origin story with Mystique. We shall see. Um, you know, I, I can understand one shots, but the beginning of a series, five ninety nine for forty pages. You know, Marvel did this in the two thousands. They started to raise books from two ninety nine to three ninety nine. Then in the previous decade, those three ninety nine books. Now we're getting up to four ninety nine. They're hitting us with $9.99 books like gods, but only giving 60 pages? No. Now four and now 40 pages, $5.99? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. This is this is price gouging. It's absolutely price gouging. I was listening to a podcast where someone tried to argue that we should be happy that comics are only $4.99 or $5.99 because, you know, they didn't have the price increase the way like regular magazines did, right? They were kind of using newsstand history, uh, you know, where magazines, you would get more bang for your buck and newsstand sellers, vendors would get more money, more profit from a magazine than they would from a comic, which was only like, you know, 50 cents or 40 cents. Um, uh, so, you know, that's well known that newsstand vendors were like, they were just getting rid of comics. They were like, no, we're getting out of the comics business. That's why the direct market business had to to be formed. Um, uh, comics weren't giving them profit the way magazines were. But then, you know, that analogy doesn't really hold up. Like, comics sh should be more expensive, that guy was saying. It's like, no. If I want to read Wired magazines, they they put out 10 to 12 issues a year. Marvel puts out 50 titles a month. There is no comparison to a magazine when when they're putting out multiple titles. And, you know, if I just want to re read Wired magazine, I mean, and someone might say, well, then go read just Spider-Man and you'll read that 18 times a year or whatever it is. But no, it's not the same. It's not the same. Marvel puts out multiple titles. And if you want to be a fan of Marvel Comics, if you want to read one of their crossovers, that's a lot of money. It's a bad comparison. It really is just a bad. It's greed. It's total greed. It's price gouging. They're only going to hurt themselves. There are a lot of ways to read Marvel comics cheaply, whether you get the app, whether you read them for free. Mm-hmm. You know? So, yeah, that's quite shocking. All right, I talked about this. Boom Studios, Animal Pound by Tom King and Peter Gross. They are putting out an ash can, a preview of the miniseries for $2.99. They're banking on this being really big for them. So I have to imagine maybe the Ashcan is a way to kind of say, okay, how many people are actually going to get some physical copies? And if we sell this Ashcan, it might give us a good idea how much we're going to sell per issue. It might get more eyes on the series. It might mean something like, okay, we obviously are going to get a big draw for this. We can do the individual issues. We're going to get some hard covers, some soft covers out of it. So yeah, this is a big deal for them. Continuing through to some of the smaller publishers from Ablaze, this looked interesting. Gannibal Volume 1 by Masaka Ninomiya. 
a terrifying manga horror series, which ran from 2018 to 2021. Apparently, there's a live-action series on Hulu. It's about a small town, a missing cop, a village psycho thriller, it's called. So that looked good in previews. From Massive Publishing, Basic Instinct, the comic, 104, uh, by Sam Freeman and Vanessa Del Rey for $4.99. Yes, based on the movie where an artist who has a gallery showing of famous murders uh, is centering on Catherine Trammell, who was Sharon Stone's character in Basic Instinct. Vanessa Del Rey, one of those artists that I mentioned about being, you know, one of the backbones of comic book art. She's from Cuba. From BBC Books, Hootopia, The Ultimate Guide to the Hooniverse, hardcover for $45, celebrating 60 years of Doctor Who. Is it an encyclopedia? Is it a story? Anthology series? I don't know, but if it's an encyclopedia, I do love me some encyclopedias. From 2000 AD, Comic Book Punks, How a Generation of Brits Reinvented Pop Culture Hardcover, $29.99, by Carl Stock, looking back at the impact of British writers and artists on comic books in the 1980s. You're going to get interviews, you're going to get uh, interviews with uh, creatives and editors, and you're going and it's going to look back on Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and others telling the story of the triumphs and disasters that rewrote the rule book on what comics could be and who they should be for. From Scout Comics, This Little Piggy, number one of three, I believe, by Sean Gabarin, Carlos Lopez, $4.99. All Reggie wants to do is uphold family tradition. He has studied, has learned every technique. Now it's simply time to put, to get, put everything into practice. After stapling piggy masks onto their faces, Reggie must confront hunting down his longtime crush, Abigail, and her family. Coming of age is hard when you're a werewolf. There's a nice little spin there at the end. By um, So written by Sean Gabarin, again, another uh, person in the big CGS circle. So great that he's getting uh, more work out there. From DC Comics in this month's previews, take a look at Batman Offworld number one. Jason Aaron writing his first Batman story with art by Doug Monkey. Apparently it's supposed to uh, take place it was it's Batman's first adventure in the cosmos fighting alien threats which is perfect for Doug's artwork we're getting new miniseries for Batman 89 and bat and Superman 78 so Batman echoes by Sam Ham and Joe Quinones I think we're getting Batgirl in that story Superman 78 by Robert Venditti with new artist Gavin Goodry with uh, the villain Metallo and I guess Gudry is replacing Wilfredo Torres on art. I wonder what he's doing. Um, this month gives us the previews for and the solicits for Outsiders number one by Jackson Lansing, Colin Kelly, uh, the hive mind they are called, the writers behind Star Trek. So <laughs> listen to this. So it's Outsiders is the return of comic book archaeology digging into all the forgotten corners of DC's history to preserve, record, and better understand the true nature of the DC multiverse and the forgotten stories that make up its fabric. This will unite Batwoman, Luke Fox, and just wait until you meet the third man. 
How are they getting away with such a blatant planetary ripoff? Or is that the point? You know, are they doing to planetary what Jeff Johns was doing with Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen? And will they go into planetary stuff? Will we actually see characters from planetary? You know, I'm so confused yet awed by the the just brazen nature of going, yes, this is our version of planetary, but but and we're not trying to hide it. You know, I, I mean, I like that premise, you know, digging into the corners of DC's history. I like this writing team. I love Star Trek, you know, so it's like, OK, where are they going to go? Are they going to go into pre-crisis Earth one? That would be great. Um, I don't know. I'm fascinated by this, so I can't wait. And then lastly, in uh, the DC previews, the big crossover coming uh, to, to the DC universe, Titans Beast World by Tom Taylor and Yvonne Hayes. The Necrostar is threatening to end all life, and the only hero who can save the day is Beast Boy. Millions of people and heroes are turned into animals. This is the first Titans crossover, and they're, uh, well, this is the Titans' first crossover as the world's premier superhero team. So how are they going to handle all this? Usually it's the Justice League. Is this going to be like Night Terrors? Is it going to be like DC Endless Winter? Is it going to be like Spider Island, where the fun, I guess, is seeing all the characters that we know turn into beasts? But what is it ultimately going to mean by the time it ends, right? Like, And it kind of feels like Lazarus Planet, right? Where, where one thing affects everybody, and then you get stories told, and then really the point is resolving that situation, but... Are there going to be any larger narratives? You know, when I think of events, I think of larger narratives, not even crisis related, but just, you know, think of something like Final Night where, uh, you know, the Sun Eater was eating the, the sun and it was causing the world to freeze. So people had to respond to that. And you could tell all different kind of stories on that, you know, and people coming to terms with the end of the world. Like what is what is the end of the world nature of this? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm struggling with this one. I want to buy it. It's Titans related. I want to get it physically, but I might read some of the spinoffs or tie-ins on the app because it's going to just be too expensive. And it has Yvonne Hayes, which I love, you know, I'm so conflicted. One of my favorite JLA stories in the 80s was a story entitled Beasts, where these humans were doing experiments on themselves and turning into animal-like creatures. And they were having these, you know, battle contests that all the rich people would go to. And um, the Justice League, it was like three parts around issue 220, 221, 222, something like that. Um, and the Justice League actually had a hard time fighting them. It was, it was, it's a great story. It's a great three-parter. Um, so, you know, there's precedence that this could be something good, but I, I just feel like it's going to come across goofy. So, ooh, I don't know. These are the kind of things that I'm thankful that I have the app, you know, because like, like Night Terrors, you know, I could just read it on there. All right, let's go to your recommendations for the week of September 6th. These are issues that are actually coming out this week, as opposed to what I just talked about. Those were previews for, as I mentioned, stuff that's coming in November. Tons of Dawn of DC stuff. Blue Beetle number one, the new series, Josh Truillo and Adrian Gutierrez. That starts this week. Birds of Prey, number one, by Kelly Thompson, art by Leonardo Romero. That starts this week. Fire and Ice, Welcome to Smallville, one of six. That's a miniseries by Joanne Starr 
and uh, Natasha Bustos. That starts this week. All of those issues, $3.99. So, you know, cheap. Cheaper comic. Cheaper comics. Not cheap, but cheaper comics. <laughs> also look out for the hardcover to Gotham City Year One by Tom King and Phil Hester and Eric Gapster, Jordi Belair, collecting that six-issue series if you haven't read that, $29.99. And from Dark Horse, Memoria Trade Paperback, $22.99. Chuck Pyers, Sunando C., and Mark Dale are your creative team. Uh, True Detective meets Lethal Weapon with the prestige dramatic storytelling of a David Fincher film. Wow, that's a lot to live up to. When an aged, terminally ill detective and a young burnout are partnered up and saddled with an unsolvable case, they begin to unravel a sprawling conspiracy that points to one thing, the most prolific serial killer in American history. As they further investigate the case, they make discoveries that will force them to question everything and everyone they know. Sounded interesting, looked interesting, heck of a premise. Heck of an elevator pitch. Go check it out. There you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of September 6th. Come explore the Hyborian Age and tread the jeweled thrones of Earth with me, Stephen Orr, and the Hither Came Conan podcast. Together we'll look at Conan the Barbarian, the Marvel comic series that began in 1970, one issue at a time, along with any other Conan comics I can get my hands on. Get Hither Came Conan now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get podcasts. That was a podcast promo bumper leading us into a podcast promo segment. So if you've been listening to me podcast all these many years, you know that I enjoy fostering a sense of community among fellow podcasters and among listeners going all the way back to the CGS days. You know, we love the medium, so it was a no-brainer to share our space and to share and play promos, give announcements, uh, have fellow podcasters on as guests, give them forums on the forum, etc. Even here on the Daily Rios, I try to play promos when I can, like I just did. And uh, I am going to devote this entire segment to a new, newish podcaster or, or a, a new podcast. So this is entitled One to Grow On. It says, your time machine to the coolest moments in 80s and 90s pop culture. If you're not careful, you might learn something before it's done. This new podcast is hosted by Wayne Cordova. Or if you're a longtime CGS listener, you might know him as Radio Wayne or even the Geek Pastor. And One to Grow On began in August of this year with topics such as Ghostbusters, DuckTales, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, He-Man, Transformers, and more. So if you're a nostalgia fan of the same generation as the rest of us Gen Xers or even early Gen Y millennials, or if you want to learn about the greatest two decades of geekdom, give the following promo a listen and be sure to subscribe. So I'm going to play uh, Wayne's episode zero, uh, the trailer to the Wonder Grow On podcast. That way you can give it a listen, see if you like it, and you can give us, uh, you can go and subscribe to it. So you can find this on onetogrowonpodcast.com. 
and I think you'll enjoy what you hear. So take it away, Wayne. Coffee in the big time. Dust off your Walkmans and grab your Rubik's Cube. Don't cross the streams. This is Radio Wayne's One to Grow On, your 30-minute time machine to the coolest moments in 80s and 90s pop culture, wrapped up in a tasty spiritual hot pocket. Stick around for some great retro fun, and if you're not careful, you might learn something before it's done. And now, here's your host, Wayne Cordova. Get ready to journey back in time where the arcade machines were loud, the hair was big, and pop culture shaped a generation. Welcome to Radio Wayne's One to Grow On. It's your retro rewind to the rad days of the 80s and 90s. Welcome, true believers. I'm your host, Wayne Cordova, the time traveler tour guide to the most colorful decades of the last century. We're about to embark on a thrilling trip down memory lane, revisiting the brands, the shows, and the movies, and the franchises, and the unforgettable phenomenon that shaped our childhoods. I was born in the bicentennial year of 1976, which puts me right in the sweet spot of being a child of the 80s and a teenager of the 90s. Belleville, New Jersey was my stomping ground for the first decade of my life. Many afternoons were spent perched in front of the TV, channel surfing between WOR Channel 9 and WPIX Channel 11. There was also the sprinkling of educational shows from PBS Channel 13, with the likes of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers painting an ideal picture of our neighborhoods filled with friendly faces. Then came the adolescent years, a change of scenery as I moved to the vibrant city of Miami, Florida, a shift in TV channels too, with syndicated cartoons courtesy of WBFS TV 33 and WDZL 39 filling up most of my viewing time. Those channels are going to be really important later because I spent most of my time there growing up. And just as I began my high school journey, I scored the best gig a teenager could ever dream of. I was a video store clerk at West Coast Video. Imagine getting a front row seat to the evolution of pop culture, watching trends ebb and flow, and being part of the transition from VHS to DVD. That immersive experience ignited a deep-seated passion for the pop culture of the 80s and 90s. It's an era that for me, and I'm sure many of you, was a formative period. We discovered heroes in the everyday and in the fantastical, all while growing up and making sense of the world around us. In each episode of this podcast, I'll be sharing that passion with you, exploring every facet of those two decades. From Ghostbusters to DuckTales, Cannonball Run to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we'll dissect beloved franchises, relive the excitement of iconic brands, and deep dive into the cult classic movies of the 80s and 90s. We'll be basking in the warmth of our shared memories and maybe even shedding light on aspects you've never considered before. But we're not stopping there. Oh no, you see... What made much of the children's programming from the 80s so special was the inclusion of life lessons. Like in He-Man, where we learned about the importance of honesty, or in G.I. Joe, where the value of teamwork was emphasized. And who could forget the Super Friends, teaching us about courage and the pursuit of justice. In that same spirit, each episode of Radio Wayne's One to Grow On will include a retro-themed life lesson, something to think about, something to learn from, something to just give us one to grow on. So, whether you're a seasoned pop culture aficionado, a retro enthusiast, or just someone who's curious about the vibrant palette of the 80s and 90s, you're in the right place. This podcast is all about reminiscing, reconnecting, and reliving the moments that 
have defined us. Now, grab a bowl of your favorite sugar-filled cereal, kick back, and let's set the dial to the fun-filled frequencies of yesteryear. Because we're not just going back in time, we're going home. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. It took me a while to decide to jump into the podcasting world again, partly because I felt like I needed to get things just right, or I felt like I needed to be in the perfect situation to make it happen. But the truth is, podcasting brings me great joy, and I just needed to go for it and just get started. So what are you waiting for? What's something that you've been putting off? Is there something that brings you great joy that you haven't taken the leap of faith yet to get started? So here's a few things that I've learned. Step one, embrace the fearless spirit. Ferris Bueller taught us that life moves fast and that we should stop and look around for a while to avoid missing out. Embrace the fearless spirit of Ferris Bueller and take that leap of faith. Rick Warren once said in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, we are products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners of it. Don't let past fears or failures hold you back. Embrace the present with enthusiasm and an unshakable belief in your abilities. Step two, trust your gut instincts. When you take a leap of faith, trust that you are making the right decision for yourself. Listen to your heart and it will guide you towards the path you're meant to take. A lot of times we get stuck in our head and fill it with what ifs or barriers that don't actually exist. Step three, let go of perfectionism. In the wise words of Ferris, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Don't let perfectionism hold you back from taking action. Life is a series of problems. Either you're in one now, you're just coming out of one, or you're getting ready to go into another one. There's never going to be a perfect time. Embrace the imperfections and challenges that come your way. And remember that growth happens when we step out of our comfort zones. As we kick off the beginning of this exhilarating journey of this podcast, let's remember that life is too short for excuses. It's time to seize the day, take a leap, and do the thing that we've been longing for. Embrace the fearless spirit, trust your instincts, and let go of perfectionism. And that's one to grow on. Last thing I need at this point in my career is 1,500 Ferris Bueller disciples running around these halls. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Okay, true believers, thanks so much for hanging out for this trailer. It's been an absolute blast diving in with you to my world of 80s and 90s pop culture here on Radio Wayne's One to Grow On. This is just a trailer, so there's so much more fun to be had in the future. Get ready for some epic episodes coming your way featuring the one and only 1984 movie Ghostbusters, the classic 1987 Disney's cartoon DuckTales, the totally tubular world of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and the electrifying WWF rock and wrestling connection era. The nostalgia is big, folks, and it's going to be a blast. But wait, there's more. Every episode, we'll be taking your questions in our Q&A segment. So, Don't be shy. Send those questions our way and let's geek out together. Before we wrap up, let me remind you to hit the subscribe button on all podcast platforms and leave us a review too. It's like a sprinkling pop culture magic dust to help others find our show. Now, here's a little secret. For just $5 a month, you can unlock a treasure trove of bonus content by joining our Patreon community. Exclusive posts, 
future topic polls, and a fantastic bonus audio called The More You Know. Stay connected, my fellow pop culture enthusiasts. You can leave us a voicemail at 727-37-WAYNE or 727-379-2963 and shoot us an email at radiowayne at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow our adventures on social media at Radio Wayne. Until next time, keep those neon colors shining. The Walkman's playing, and we'll catch you on the flip side. So as we say goodbye for now, always remember, be kind, rewind. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. Today in History, September 8, 1973. Fifty years ago, on this very day, we got the first episodes of two animated series. Enjoy. In the Great Hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the... Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of... Superman! Wonder Woman! Batman! Aquaman! And the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds. Their mission to fight injustice. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To right that which is wrong and to serve all mankind. That wraps up this week's Digest. Email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the Daily Rios website and Instagram. Go follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Send me your book club recommendations, your promos, your audio talkback clips. This has been the Daily Rios, episode 634 for Saturday, September 9th, 2023. Talk to you soon. Rap. It's too damn hot.